0: Let's pray together. We thank you, God, that we can welcome Your presence into our midst. <coughs> Teach us Your truth. Grant us Your wisdom. For we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Humble, powerless, trusting Jesus the final week. Could be a good title for a movie, couldn't it? Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, he never saw the I am who stood before him. And Jesus didn't argue with Pilate about that. The text tells us he made no reply, not even to a single charge against him, to the great amazement of the governor. And according to Matthew, Jesus' next words were his cry from the cross of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his final week, in this final week, Jesus was resigned to his own powerlessness. Yes, we sing right on, right on in majesty and lowly pomp, right on to die, bow your meek head to mortal pain, then take, O God, your power and reign. The words of the Palm Sunday hymn, which we'll sing after this, speaks of a power that paradoxically comes through giving up power. In this final week, Jesus chose to be without power, trusting in the one who holds all power, a higher power, if you like. Or as C.S. Lewis put it in the Nania Chronicles, a deeper magic Some of you will be familiar with the AA movement Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step program of recovery. The very first step in that process is to admit that we are powerless. We admitted we were powerless over our addiction, it needn't just be alcohol, and that our lives have become unmanageable. I think we've got a slide of this up here. I remember Years ago, being involved in a church which ran a Christian version of AA, which is called Celebrate Recovery, hands up if you've heard of it. I expect Sarah to hear about it. I'm amazed nobody else has heard about it. Celebrate Recovery is a Christian version of Alcoholics Anonymous or any other addiction program, and it holds the same twelve steps, but it ties it into the scriptures. Well, I got involved in Celebrate Recovery for a bit in that it was a fantastic ministry of supportive, loving, humble people who knew that the first step to recovery was to stop denying they had a problem. The first step in any recovery or improvement is to recognise that one has a problem which needs to be dealt with. Denial robs people of the opportunity to recover. There's great power in admitting one's powerlessness. If you admit, you're admitted, you're accepted. And the people who came through Celebrate Recovery discovered that and had an infectious hospitality as a result, they were then good at welcoming others and it became a key ministry in the mission of the church. Now the second step in recovery, in the recovery movement, is to come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. A power greater than ourselves, a higher power. Now, AA doesn't name that power, but its founder, Bill Wilson, had no doubt that this was God. And, And Celebrate Recovery also is quite clear that it is God who is the source behind real power. The Irish writer James Finlay was someone who discovered this higher power for himself. He hadn't known God any other way before coming to know God through admitting his own powerlessness. In his own words, this is how he put his coming to believe. You know, I don't know who you are, but I do know who you are. You're the one who saved my life, and I don't know who I am either, but I do know I'm the one you saved. It's, it's that paradox of not knowing yet knowing that is so typical of the faith that we are invited to live by day by day. The same faith that Jesus breathed and lived even in his cry of abandonment from the cross and his inner knowing of yet not my will be done but yours. Richard Rohr writes about this sense of not knowing as powerlessness He reckons that it is in the recognising that we don't know how to love at all that actually keeps us on the path of love. We don't know how to love at all that actually keeps us on the path of love. Constant failure at loving is ironically and paradoxically what keeps us learning how to love. When we think we're there, there's nothing to learn. Um, Catherine Chapman has written a book called Step Spirit, the 12 steps as a spiritual program. In it she says, admitting our powerlessness frees us to allow the one who is power to become active in our lives. We become more open to new ways of doing things as we allow God to love us and teach us how to give and receive love. We also begin to accept people and situations as they are. As we realise we aren't in control, but God is in control, we are more able to detach from people and situations that are unhealthy for us and accept these the way they are. This doesn't mean we quit caring, we care, but we don't allow the situation to determine our thoughts, actions and feelings. Well, Jesus accepted his powerlessness in the face of evil, and despite his later cry of abandonment, I think he knew who was ultimately in control. The God of Wisdom appears early in the story of God. Wisdom appears right from the very beginning. Creation would not be possible without her. Wisdom is everywhere. In every part of creation she leaves her mark. Wisdom is with God from the beginning and forever. Wisdom is God, the one present at the Rubicon moments, the place where choices are made, directions of travel are chosen, intentions are conceived and induced into actions which have consequences. The question to ask us ourselves might be, do we give God a place in these pivotal Rubicon moments? Do we let wisdom have her place and allow the infusion of spirit to influence the choices we make in life? Even if that is to choose whether or not to recognize our addictions or to accept that we are the ones not in control. Wisdom is present at the threshold to everything ahead of us. Choosing to pay attention and be animated by God's wisdom is a defining moment. Like Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem and trial before Pilate were defining moments in God's story of love. In that moment of the joyous acknowledgement of the person and presence of Jesus as God's Son arriving in Jerusalem, is a metaphor for God's self revelation at the most crucial defining moment of life. In God, through Jesus, we see a different type of divine power to the stereotypical human power revealed too often in our world. God's power is nonetheless effective against the systems of the world, so at odds with God's intended creation. In much the same way as wisdom herself shows up at these moments of crux, Palm Sunday reminds us, much as Christmas does, that God is present in these moments, and God's power goes on ahead into the circumstances of the world that need attention. We are left with a choice as always? Do we join with this divine procession towards a restored world? Or do we stay behind under the influence of a false wisdom that says we, or the world, knows best? Would we continue to cry, Hosanna, save us, whilst the world around about us is shouting, crucify him. It's a choice that perhaps surprisingly we see being played out in the dream life of Pilate's wife, as she beseeches her husband not to get involved in the political games that were afoot over Jesus' arrest and the desire of some of him to have him ex- executed. She, unnamed, knows Jesus to be innocent and fears the outcome of sending an innocent man to his death. Her wisdom and appeal to Pilate, however, are not heeded over the shouts of the crowd. The text tells us, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Well, many have speculated on the source of the dream, was it from God? Saint Augustine said it was, and the Eastern Church went as far as making her a saint, Saint Procla whose story is further embellished in the Gospel of Nicodemus, a probably 5th century apocryphal book. Centuries later, during the Reformation, John Calvin agreed, whereas Martin Luther said her dream was from the devil because it aimed at preventing salvation. According to the text, Pilate ignores his wife, which, as we married men know, is rarely the right response. Pilate may have washed the blood off his hands, but were his hands really tied? He did have a choice, didn't he? Did he do all he could to do the right thing? Did he have to submit to the crowd being for blood? Did he need to place the fate of Jesus into the hands of bloodthirsty men, whilst Lady Wisdom looked on? What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. Surely he knew that they'd respond with shouts of crucify him. Why ignore wisdom? Could he not see the possibility of wisdom shouting to him in the counsel of his wife? If wisdom is so obvious that she is like a voice shouting out at the entrance to the city, why does it so often go unlived by? She is at the entrance to the city because her counsel is needed in the lives of all who do enter. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, says Proverbs 9.10. It's fear in the sense of awe, of recognition, of respect, of reverence. We can't function well without this necessary foundation to everything we do and say. Otherwise, we'll go mad with the shouting of the crowd and miss the whisper of love. Jesus managed to live by that greater voice. And thanks to him, we can too. Let's pray. Humble, powerless, yet trusting, knowing where control lies, the way of wisdom, the path of Jesus, our path now. Amen. (coughs) Let's sing right on, right on in majesty.